Let's come to the Lord in prayer once more. Oh, gracious Heavenly Father, we uh, come before you this evening. We thank you for your kindness to us and allowing us to be able to be exposed to the word of God once again. We pray that you would strengthen us as we would come to hear the word, that our hearts would be receptive, uh, would give us faith so that we would not just hear the word, but do the word. Uh, you would strengthen me as I would seek to communicate something of the uh, immeasurable depths of the scriptures to your people, that I would not be uh, an obstacle. Help me, Lord, to be able to be clear and to exalt Jesus Christ. We ask that we would all leave here with a greater view of our Savior and a greater desire to live a life that would make much of him. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, so this evening I want to speak to us from Hebrews chapter 12, as our brother Joseph read for us. Hebrews chapter 12 and verses 1 to 3. So Hebrews chapter 12 and verses 1 to 3. Um, and the title of this sermon is essentially Running the Christian Race. Running the Christian Race. That's the title of the sermon. And um, just by way of introduction, uh, any of you who are familiar with the book of Hebrews will know that it's been written to uh, well, a bunch of Christians um, who are essentially struggling in their faith. They're about to give up. Um, their faith is on the wane. They are uh, on the verge of turning away. Um, they are in deep struggle, as it were. And the author writes to them to rekindle a dampened flame. Um, he's writing to these believers who are struggling. They're, uh, they're waning in their faith. Some have apostatized already. Some are um, considering leaving the faith. Some are just backsliding, not coming to church. There's different struggles within this Christian community, mainly uh, Jewish Christians uh, who have uh, come to know the Lord, but they're being tempted to go back to Judaism because of persecution and various trials. And the author is essentially writing to them to say, you can't give up, you need to press on, you need to hang in there, you need to keep trusting in Jesus Christ. Um, he does this through a, a series of different arguments and exhortations, teaching and uh, warnings uh, throughout the, the letter. But it's a letter of great significance and relevance uh, in every age, and especially even today, um, with many of the arguments he discusses uh, in a time where the, you know, the, the nature of salvation and the doctrine of uh, Christ's uh, deity and the, the fact that he's the only way through which we can be saved. In an in age where there is so much uh, plur pluralism with religions, this letter has significance and relevance uh, for us today. So that's uh, the audience. It's been written to Jewish Christians who are struggling in their faith. As far as the author is concerned, obviously in the KGV it says Paul, uh, the Apostle Paul, but the truth is we don't actually know who the author actually was. Only God knows uh, ultimately. There have been various suggestions throughout uh, the history of the church and among scholars that it could have been perhaps uh, Barnabas, it could have been uh, Clement of Rome, it could have been Apollos who was mighty in the scriptures, it could have been Luke. All we know for sure is that it must have had some sort of apostolic supervision, otherwise it wouldn't be in the canon as one of the inspired uh, books. So we don't know for sure, but we know that it's inspired and it's here in the scriptures. Um, the date of the letter could possibly, possibly be about AD 80. Um, we don't know particularly when this was written, but it would have been sometime after probably the second half of the first century, so AD 80 uh, is a rough guide. And um, as I've mentioned, the author is just writing to inspire these believers, to encourage them to look to Jesus Christ. Um, he's going to exhort them throughout the letter to look to Christ and to press on, but he wants to really exalt Jesus Christ to them. This letter is filled with rich Christology. It's just about Jesus from start to finish. He wants to exalt Jesus Christ. Before he tells them that they need to persevere and press on and keep running, 
He gives them the motivations that they need to, to do that. And um, just a brief overview, overview uh, I beg your pardon, just a brief overview um, from the chapters uh, before this chapter, chapter 12. Essentially, um, verses chapter 1 to 10, verse 18 is mostly teaching, and then chapter 10, 19 onwards, the end of the chapter is mostly exhortation. The key idea in the scriptures is look to Jesus Christ, consider him. Better is a key word in, in the letter. Throughout the letter, one of the key ideas is Jesus is better. Essentially, he is better than all the previous prophets in the Old Testament, chapter 1. God spoke in diverse ways and through different uh, methods. He spoke through different prophets um, and at different times, but that revelation was incomplete. Now God has spoken finally uh, and supremely in his son, Jesus Christ. That's it. Everything that God has to say to us um, is said to us through Jesus Christ. There's no more revelation. You Jewish believers who are being tempted to turn back and, and, and uh, regress and go back to Judaism, there's nothing for you to go back to because that's an incomplete uh, revelation. If you're going back to that, you're turning back from the supreme, uh, Jesus Christ. Jesus is better than all the uh, prophets in the Old Testament that you guys revere and cherish. As, as Jewish uh, believers who had a Jewish background, they would have uh, had so much exposure to the rich, uh, uh, sort of the rich revelation of the Old Testament and all the prophets, and they would have been very uh, proud of that. That's their heritage. Um, but the writer says to them, if you turn back from Jesus Christ and you turn back to that, you're turning back to something inferior, something that ultimately is incomplete and can't save you. So Jesus is better than all the previous prophets in the Old Testament. And then in that same chapter, he speaks briefly about Jesus being better than the angels as well. The uh, Old Testament and the law was given uh, or transmitted through angels. In the Old Testament, it's not really mentioned, but it is mentioned in the New Testament that angels were involved in the giving of the law. And that's something quite you know, astounding and mesmerizing to have angels involved in, in the transmission of the law. But the author says Christ is superior than the angels. Angels are just messengers. Angels are just servants. Jesus Christ uh, owns the angels. He's the Lord of the angels. Um, angels worship him. Angels are worshipers. Jesus Christ is the worshipped. To turn back from Jesus Christ uh, and to turn back to something that had angels involved is not going back to something better, something lesser. Jesus is better than Moses. This is uh, Hebrews chapter 3 now. Jesus is better than Moses. Moses, as great as he was and, has, and as uh, uh, popular as he was throughout the scriptures and as significant a role as he played in Old Testament revelation, Moses is not Jesus Christ. Jesus is greater than Moses. Um, and he makes the argument in chapter 3, the author. He says that uh, Moses was faithful in all God's house. He was faithful in his service, but Jesus Christ owns the house. Um, he built the house, um, and he was faithful as a son, superior to Moses. Um, Jesus is better than Aaron and the Levitical priesthood as well. You know, if you know anything about Old Testament and uh, religion, you would know that the sacrifices and the Levitical system were very much part of uh, sort of uh, Jewish life and um, Jewish religion. But the author wants to say to them that that was just shadows and types. Ultimately, Christ has come now, and he's a greater priest. He has offered one sacrifice for sins once and for all. It's done. We don't have to continue giving uh, sacrifices, keep making sacrifices. The blood of bulls and uh, goats cannot... Uh, perfect those who are being sanctified. They cannot take away sin ultimately. In these sacrifices, actually, they were a reminder of sins every year, the author says. Jesus is better than Aaron and the Levitical priesthood. Jesus is a better sacrifice uh, based on a better covenant and better promises. Jesus is better. He's better and he's the best. 
There's no comparison. You can't go back to anything else. To leave Jesus Christ is to turn to damnation, is to turn to destruction, because ultimately there is nothing else to, to, to go to. If you turn away from Christ, you won't be saved. So he's really just trying to show them skillfully and carefully throughout all these chapters leading up to chapter 12 how great Jesus Christ is. Um, for them to turn away from him is, is the greatest absurdity because outside of Christ there's no salvation, there's no eternal life. So he does that throughout the, uh, the chapters. He gives different teachings, different doctrines, then he warns them. He takes a break to warn them. There's so many exhortations, let us do this, let us do that. Take care, take care, be careful. There's so many exhortations throughout the letter, essentially warning and exhorting these believers to press on, to keep on in the faith. Don't turn away. Keep trusting Jesus Christ. Hebrews is essentially constantly contrasting false faith with real faith. False faith fades out. It doesn't last. It might be there for a time, but it never endures to the end. True faith always perseveres. There's this idea of persevering and keeping on and uh, staying to the end. That's true faith. And the author constantly deals with that idea. In his, in his exhortations, he's constantly saying, let us press on. Let us keep on. Those are the kind of ideas that he gives to these people. You need to just press on because they want to give up. They're tired. They want to throw in the towel. He's saying to them, no, you have to keep on. You have to press on. You have to keep trusting Jesus Christ. Um, and... It's pertinent to us, you know, those of us who might be reformed and we believe in this idea of once saved, always saved. There, there is no, uh, it's not mutually exclusive to say you can believe that. I also say that if you don't persevere to the end, you'll be lost. That's the idea. And the idea of salvation being an ongoing process. It's not enough to say I was, you know, I said a prayer one time or I trusted in Christ in the past. Are you still trusting him today? That's the question we, we always have to ask ourselves. Are we still trusting Jesus Christ now? Um, and will we keep trusting him from the very moment we believe to the day we die? Are we trusting Jesus Christ? Are we banking our whole life upon Jesus Christ? And will we keep doing that? And you're only a Christian in as much as you continue trusting. Um, it's, it's a strange uh, idea in, in Hebrews because Christ has done it. It's, it's accomplished. It's finished. It's a, a once for all sacrifice. If you've trusted in him and if, you, if, you've, if you've repented and believed, then that's it. You know, you're saved. But you have to press on. You have to keep trusting. You have to keep persevering. If you don't, you'll be lost. So that's the idea that he wants to communicate to these uh, believers. Um, and that's the charge that he gives to them. And uh, we come to chapter 12 now, uh, in light of that introduction, to look at the exhortation. The author has just finished speaking about the great heroes of faith in chapter 11. He talks about wonderful Old Testament figures who had much less revelation than these uh, New Testament uh, believers, by the way. Abraham, uh, Moses, uh, Abel, Rahab, Samson, um, Enoch, all of these wonderful saints uh, who persevered. They were all examples of faith. People who lived and died in faith, they persevered to the end. And he presents this to them uh, to, to encourage them to press on. And I want to really look at this chapter, well, chapter 12, verse 1 to 3, under a few headings. So first, I want to look at the nature of the Christian life, uh, those who ran before us, how we should run, and where we should look. So I'll repeat that again. The nature of the Christian life, those who ran before us, how we should run, and where we should look. Those are the headings. So first of all, the nature of the Christian life. So the Christian life oftentimes is described in various ways. 
um, various metaphors are applied to the Christian life. It's described as a race, as it's done in this chapter. It's described as a warfare, soldiers in a, in a war. It's described as a marriage, the bride and the bridegroom. Um, it's described as um, even slavery um, in, the, in the most positive sense. You know, we have master and slave, submission to, to a master. There are these ideas in the Christian life. It's described um, as something that is meant to be Involve, it's, it's going to involve work, it's going to be taxing, it's going to involve a, a lot of effort, um, at least how it's presented here. And these are different figures of speech that the Bible uses to try and describe or, or try and present to us what the Christian life uh, looks like or what it's like. Um, and here it does the idea of running. Paul says in Corinthians 9.24 that, you know, he talks about the idea of uh, running and um, those who compete in Olympic games, they run for a perishable crown, but we an imperishable. And the idea of beating his body down so that he's not disqualified. So that's the idea here. It's, it's a race, and it's not a race that is optional. We have to run. Um, so it's, not, it's, not physical, it's not physical running. It's a spiritual race, but you have to be involved in this race. If you're not running, you're not a Christian, essentially. It's not an optional race that you can say, I just want to walk or... I just want to chill. You have to run. Everybody has to be involved in the running. If you're not running, you won't be saved. So it's not optional. It requires effort. Um, and it is taxing. It is taxing, which I'll go on to speak about later. But it's a, a race. And that, that's the way the scriptures speak about uh, this particular aspect of Christian life. This is a figure of speech, a metaphor, a word picture to describe the Christian life. It's a race. So... I want to then go on to speak about those who ran before us. And that's in, that's in chapter 12, verse 1. Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, those who ran before us, just so that we're not discouraged and think that we are the only people who have been involved in this race, um, we can be so uh, microscopic in terms of how we view the Christian life and we just look in ourselves. But there's, there's a great uh, sort of throng, a cloud, a mass of Christians who have gone before us, believers who trusted in Jesus Christ, of course, they had less revelation. They didn't see as much as we do. They didn't have as much as we do, but they were believers. They trusted in Jesus Christ. They were looking forward to the promises of, of the coming Messiah, and we are surrounded by them. They, they, they've gone before us. The author tells these believers that, look at these uh, uh, believers. I've just explained to you in Hebrews chapter 11. I've just gone through all of these. I've reeled off all these names of uh, saints who conquered, who stopped the mouth of lions, who were able to endure, who were happy to have their goods plundered, who were sawn in two, who uh, were happy to, to die because they were willing to receive a resurrection that was to come. They were looking for a better city. They, they realized that this world was not their home. The world was not worthy of them. They were, uh, the world was not worthy of them. And these are the people that I'm presented, presenting to you. They're witnesses, not in the sense of people who are in a stadium watching us because the idea in Hebrews is a race, and you would think that he's saying that these people are watching us as a, a cloud of witnesses in the stadium, as spectators. But that's not the idea here, because nowhere in Scripture is that used. And the idea of witnesses, the, the word is actually more to, to signify those who testify. So by the way they've lived their lives, and by the way they've persevered, these believers, these witnesses, these Old Testament heroes are witnessing to us, they're testifying to us um, almost in like a judicial sense, in, in a court of law. They're testifying, saying that the Christian life can be lived, it can be done. We, we, we've done it. We've been there and done that, so to speak. We, we've lived that life. We persevered. It was tough, but we made it. Look at us. Um, we've persevered. We've run the race. We've ended it. We've, we've trusted in God. We didn't give up. 
we were tempted, we were assaulted, we were persecuted, we were cast down, but we never gave up. And these believers speak to us. Um, they say to us that the life of faith is the life that ultimately wins. Um, sometimes when you're going down on a path that no one else has gone down before, it can be quite scary. Um, and we're like, I don't really know about this. But when you know someone else has gone down that path and they've done it successfully, it can inspire you. And we can be inspired by the uh, Old Testament examples that we have in Hebrews chapter 11, even closer to home, even in our own personal lives. We know believers, even within our own church, that have gone to glory, who are faithful um, in their service to Jesus Christ. And we can look to them as those who have gone before us. They've run the race. They showed us that it's possible. You can be a Christian and you can persevere to the end. You don't have to give up. You don't have to go back to the world. You don't have to turn away. You can actually do this. You can, by God's grace, start and finish the race. No matter, no matter how hard it might be, you can finish. Uh, and they offer us encouragement. These believers offer, offer us encouragement. So they're the ones who have gone before us, those who ran before us. They're these great cloud of witnesses. And then the next thing I want to talk about is how we should run. So we've seen the nature of the, of the Christian life, how it's a race. Um, it's a race that requires effort. It's a spiritual race. It's taxing. Um, it's a marathon, not a sprint, essentially. And those who have run before us, those who went before us, we've seen these Old Testament believers, these heroes of faith who uh, were able to endure and persevere to the end. We've seen all of that. So how should we run? How should we run this race? The author tells us, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which does so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us. So there's two things that we, or three things rather, that we should be doing in this race. For us to run effectively and for us to run uh, to the end and to finish well and to run well, there are three things that we must do in this race. Um, two of them are negative, one of them is positive. So the two negative ones are we need to strip off every encumbrance. So this restricts our activity. We need to get rid of any unnecessary weight or anything that is stopping us from running properly. In the Olympic Games in those days, they would have been running, those runners would have been running essentially naked. They wouldn't have had any excess baggage or bulk or mass on them because they don't want to be hindered. You're dealing with fractions here. The difference between losing and winning is minimal. We're dealing with margins. So we have to get rid of every weight, every excess that, we, uh, that could possibly hinder us or get in the way. So no long robes and all these extra stuff that you might, you might see today with athletes wearing. They, they were literally naked. It was obviously... Um, a spectacle, and that's something that they did in those times. Perhaps today it would be a bit uh, out of place to see that, but that's essentially how they, they run. They run with literally almost not, literally nothing. Um, they were bare because they wanted to run freely. Um, and the author is saying something like that to us. He's saying, let's strip off, let's throw aside, let's get rid of everything that's going to encumber us, that's going to get in the way of us running effectively. Um, the weights here are not necessarily sin. It could even be positive things in our lives as Christians that are just hindrances and distractions, you know? And um, as one man says, it's not enough for us to say, oh, is it sin? That's one thing. But we have to also ask, does it help me run? You know, maturity and something that we want, if we want to pursue maturity and be uh, good runners in the Christian life, we have to ask ourselves sometimes, is this going to help me run well? Um, it's not just, uh, you know, what can I do? What's the, minimum, what's the minimum I can do and not kind of go to hell type thing? We have to also ask, how can I run my best race? How can I be the best Christian I can possibly be? Um, what are the things in my life that are hindering my, my race? And these are even good things sometimes. And sometimes we don't really want to ask ourselves those questions because we know that we might have to get rid of things. Um, but the author is challenging us. He's saying, 
lay aside every weight. Get rid of it. If it's going to hinder your, your, your race, um, if it's going to stop you from running effectively and running well and, and being a, a good runner, get rid of it, whatever it might be. For one Christian, they might feel like, you know, I watch too much TV and it's hindering my, my personal devotions um, and maybe my, my time with the Lord or my service to the local church. That's an example. So they might feel like, okay, I'm not going to watch TV no more. That's fine. I mean, you don't, not every believer has to do that. But we have to be ruthless in dealing with um, these weights. We have to get rid of it. If you want to run well, we have to be willing to say, okay, this thing in my life, it's not, it's not a sin, but it's a weight. It's hindering me from running well. I feel retarded in my, my performance. I can't run effectively as a Christian. I have to get rid of it. So we have to ask ourselves those questions. It requires some self-examination, some honest heart searching before God. Uh, and a willingness to say, listen, I would rather follow Jesus and run well uh, than be hindered uh, in, in, in the race. So that's the first thing. We must get rid of any unnecessary uh, mass or bulk that is hindering us. Um, and we have to ask ourselves, does it help me run well? Not merely is, is it sin. That's one thing to ask. But we have to also ask, is it helping me run? If it's not helping me run well and if it's not helping me love Jesus more or helping me be a better Christian, then... Is it worth really having around? Let me get rid of this weight, whatever it might be. Um, we have to be willing to be good runners. Um, and there is a cost involved. Jesus did say to us that we ought to count the cost. It's a, demand, it's a demanding life that we've been called to. It's not just a life. There's a life of joy and many consolations, but it's a life that requires something from us. And it's costly. We have to sometimes say no to things that are even in themselves uh, wholesome and good because we find that they are retarding our, our race. So we have to get rid of the weights. Um, so that's the first thing. This uh, limits our activity. This is one thing we have to do in terms of how we run. We have to get rid of excess weight. And then the second thing that we have to do um, is to get rid of the sin that easily besets us. We have to lay aside the sin which uh, easily besets us. So this is also another negative thing that we have to do to run well. And this is more to do with what mars our performance. So the first thing... Uh, restricts or limits our activity, this mars our performance. It gets in the way of the performance. It, it, it doesn't make the performance look good. It spoils the performance. Um, it retards our performance. Uh, it disfigures uh, the performance, essentially. So we have to consider the sin that easily besets us. In the context of Hebrews chapter 11, the idea is not so much just besetting sins. The, the besetting sins are the sins that you know, are skillfully surrounding us, that are always there, that are hard to shake off, the sins that constantly trip us up. That's the idea here. But the author is not thinking so much of besetting sins in our personal lives. That doesn't seem to be the, the idea here. So, you know, for one person, their besetting sin might be anger. For another, might be lust. Another, might be pride. He's not looking uh, at besetting sins so much in that sense. Considering the context of Hebrews and the warnings that he gives to these believers constantly, the, the idea here is that the besetting sin which he wants us to... Uh, be aware of and to lay aside is unbelief essentially that's what he warns these believers about throughout the whole uh, letter unbelief their, their resistance to God's word not taking God at his word not believing God's word the hardness of heart that refuses to hear God's voice if you hear if today you hear his voice do not harden your hearts as those uh, believers did or as those Israelites did in the Old Testament and they didn't enter into his rest don't be hardened by an evil heart of unbelief, Hebrews chapter 3. Unbelief is a constant uh, idea in, in Hebrews and something that he warns these believers against. So he's saying to them, 
In terms of your unbelief, you need to lay that aside. Uh, lay aside the unbelief. The, the, the sin is in the definite article. So it's a particular sin that the author has in mind, not just besetting sins in general, but a particular sin, which, considering the context of Hebrews, it would be most likely unbelief. So he's saying lay aside unbelief. Unbelief, you might say, is at the root of every sin we commit. We sin ultimately every time because we don't believe God and his word. We, we believe Satan. We believe um, our own flesh. We believe the promises uh, of the world. So we sin. So unbelief essentially is at the root of everything that we do against God. So he's saying lay aside unbelief as well. Put it aside. An, an extra application could apply to besetting sins uh, in our lives. So, you know, certain sins that we find that trip us up, although that's not the immediate uh, sort of interpretation, you could apply it to besetting sins. And we have to examine ourselves as well and say, what are the sins in my life that I find that are constantly, constantly around? They, they, they are hard to shake off. They're constantly tripping me up. They're constantly causing me to stumble. How can I get rid of these besetting sins? And we have to be ruthless in seeking to put them to death and prevent uh, the occasions for these things. There are certain things that we have to do. Our Lord Jesus Christ said, you know, if your right eye causes you to to sin, tear it out, and if your, your, arm, your right arm causes you to sin, tear it away. The idea is, you know, do whatever you need to do to get rid of um, things that will cause you to sin, and we have to be ruthless in dealing with these besetting sins. We have to be able to locate certain sins in our lives. This is a constant kind of thorn in my flesh, so to speak. I, maybe because of my temperament or because of something about me personally, I constantly succumb to this type of sin, and I have to be ready to know how to deal with it and be on guard. So there is an application there for us um, as far as besetting sins in general are concerned. So he says to lay aside uh, the weight and the sin. So those are the two things he wants us to do negatively. Get rid of the weight, the excess baggage, the, the, the things that are hindering you from uh, running, that, that restrict your activity, and then just sort of put to death, lay aside those, uh, lay aside the besetting sin, ultimately unbelief, but also any besetting sins in your, in your lives that are going to hinder you uh, or make your, your race uh, look ugly, essentially. Um, and, you know, as one man says, Christians, we, we're, we're not stupid in how we approach the Christian life. So we get rid of the weight, but we also don't cheat. Cheating is, uh, is a bad thing. We don't, we don't try and do things the wrong way. So that's where the besetting sin comes. And we get rid of things in our lives that are going to hinder us, even if they're positive. But we also don't want to be those who are unbelieving in how we approach God, God's word. So that's what the author says to us um, negatively. And then... Positively, he says that we should run the race with patience. Uh, we should let us run with patience the race that is set before us. Patience there could also be translated as endurance. Um, and the Christian life is one that requires effort. It's taxing. It's not a, a short-term sprint. You know, those of you who have ever done running before, 100 meters is, is one thing. You know, if you can do a, a short burst, of pace from you know over 100 meters or over 60 meters that that's one thing but to be able to do something over 400 meters or 800 and so on and so forth it requires a lot of pacing it requires a lot of patience it requires a lot of endurance it requires a different kind of stamina you can't just try and get it done in a hurry and have it over within you know a couple of seconds it, it requires time it requires effort and that's the christian life essentially we're not we've not been enlisted into a sprint you know uh, it's, it's a marathon uh, if 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 you know anything about the Christian life, you know that it's taxing. It requires effort. Sometimes we feel like you know, we're out of breath. We're panting. We're probably on the verge of giving up. Um, we feel like we can't go another day uh, in the faith. But then the Lord revives us and we carry on and we press on. 
but it's, it's a race that requires a lot of endurance. The, the idea of endurance there is perseverance, constancy, steadfastness, bearing up under, uh, just enduring and staying, sticking at it, just sticking at it. That's, that's the idea. Um, and that's how we have to be um, with the Christian life. There's a, there's a favorite quote of mine um, from a, a Marvel superhero. He says, I can do this all day. And that's how we have to be with the, with the Christian life. We have to be able to say, you know, I'm willing to stay here as, as long as it takes. I'm not going to give up. I can do this all day, so to speak. By the grace of God, I want to stick at this. I want to stay here no matter what it costs, no matter how much uh, sin seems to just thwart my uh, advance, no matter how many times I've fallen in the same way, I'm struggling with the same sins, I seem not to be making much progress, um, I've struggled with my Bible reading and prayer for however long, um, and it just seems to be like a, a, you know, a slow, a sluggy, uh, sort of sluggish process. No matter what happens, I'm going to stay. I can't turn away from Jesus Christ, so I'm just going to endure. Um, and even if I get to heaven limping, I would rather that than perish. So that's how we have to look at the Christian life. We have to be willing to say, I'm going to stick at it. I'm not going to give up. I'm not going to turn from Christ. I'm persuaded that there is no salvation outside of him. And like Peter says, to whom else can we go? You have the words of eternal life. So that's how we have to run. We have to put away the, the weight, get, you know, get rid of the besetting sin. And then also we have to positively um, run with endurance. We have to run with endurance. And then uh, lastly, where we must look, where we must look. It's one thing for us to look at the Old Testament saints and gain encouragement from them, but they were all imperfect people, ultimately. You know, they, they, were, they were people who had sins. They were people who weren't um, perfect. They were people who, were, you know, who had fears like we do, who had struggles like we do, who had doubts. And, um, yeah, they, they persevered and they ended well. But they are not ultimately our, our final encouragement or our final um, source of strength. We don't look to Old Testament saints or even to believers around us to find strength and help in time of need. Ultimately, you know, the, you know, brothers and sisters can pray for you and encourage you in the faith, but there's someone greater that we look to for strength in this race. How are we supposed to endure? How are we supposed to keep on keeping on? How are we supposed to, you know, just stick at it to the end? Um, how are we supposed to do that? How, how do we not give up? How do we not turn away? How does any believer end up in heaven um, amidst all the trials, amidst all the, the struggles, the doubts, the fears? How does any believer make it to heaven? Well, we see it here in, in chapter uh, 12, verse 2. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest ye be wearied and faint in your minds. Jesus is the ultimate answer. Um, there's a, there's a, a quote that's, that says Jesus is the answer. Um, of course, there's some things that you know, Jesus is not the answer for. So in your you know, maths examination, don't go and put Jesus is the answer for that. But you know, Jesus is the answer in a very true sense for all of life's ills and, and problems and cares. When we want to look to the person that we need to find strength to keep on in this Christian life, we look to Jesus. Um, we look to Jesus. And I'm going to mention some ways in which we should look to him. Um, so first, we should look to Jesus as our victorious pioneer, our victorious pioneer. So in uh, chapter 12, verse 2, it says, looking unto Jesus, the author. The, the word author there means originator or trailblazer or pathfinder or the one who's gone before us. Um, not so much that Jesus Christ is the, the person who begins faith in us. Um, not so much that, but he's gone before us. He's our perfect example. 
Moses failed. He didn't enter the promised land. Um, Abraham, you know, doubted God at times. Um, Samson was a man filled with so many weaknesses. We see all of these men. They, they, were, they were men at best. Jesus Christ is our perfect example. Um, he has set, the, set the, the pace. He has done the work before us. He's gone ahead of us. He's the trailblazer. He is the one who has lived perfectly, um, essentially. That's the, that's the word author. Um, that's what the idea means. And we, should look, we need to look at Christ intently. We need to take our eyes away from, from everything and fix our gaze on him. The author wants these believers to spend time looking at Jesus. Just look at him. Take your eyes off everything else um, and look at Jesus Christ. Fix your eyes on him. It requires us. There's so many things that can compete for our attention. And obviously, we, we, are, we are constantly uh, assailed and assaulted in this life by the world, by Satan, by our own flesh. And our, our mind's eye is constantly being turned away to other things. But the author is saying to these believers, fix your attention on Jesus Christ. Just almost like put the um, blinkers on and just have a, a singular focus on Jesus. Turn away from everything and fix your focus on Jesus. Um, and he wants them to look to Jesus as the author of their faith, the one who has uh, gone before them, the one who has uh, founded and pioneered um, and has taken the lead. Jesus Christ has taken the lead. He's gone ahead. He's lived a perfect life as a man. There's a, there's a heavy emphasis on Jesus Christ's humanity in this passage. He is uh, our compassionate um, friend who understands our, our struggles. He's a faithful high priest. He knows what it's like for us to be tempted. He's been tempted in every point as we are yet without sin. He has gone ahead. He lived a perfect life of obedience to his father. Never once did he falter. He went ahead. He lived the perfect life of faith as a man. Um, he said, my meat and my drink is to do the will of God. He came to do God's will and never once did he falter. Abraham faltered. Moses faltered at points. Um, Samson faltered. All the believers, Paul would have faltered. Calvin faltered. All of these believers that we love and we cherish, Spurgeon faltered. They all faltered. Um, though they're in heaven, they all faltered at one point or another. Jesus Christ never faltered. He lived a perfect life of faith from beginning to end. And he's the author uh, of our faith. Um, but he's also here um, commended to us as the perfecter. So we have to also look to Jesus, not just as the author, as the trailblazer, as the originator of our faith, but also as the only perfecter of our faith as well. Um, Jesus Christ lived a perfect life and in, in, in that sense, as a man, his, his faith was brought to perfect completion. Um, and in him, we find our faith completed as well. Jesus Christ showed us what it's like to live as a human being in this world and live a perfect life of faith from beginning to end. He perfects faith. Um, he is the beginning and end of faith, essentially. Um, he consummates faith. And Jesus Christ is the one to whom we must look. Um, when you try and give people advice and try and counsel them through their difficulties and their struggles, you can say so many things to them. Um, but you have to always tell them, look to Jesus. That is never bad advice for any ill that we go through as Christians. No, that's always pertinent. It's always relevant. You can say so many things to someone who's going through struggles and, and different turmoil and um, try and be wise in, in what you say to them. But it's never bad advice to say, look to Jesus. Never. Always we must look to him because we're always in need of him. There's never a time in the Christian life where you do not need Jesus Christ. You always do. Um, and that's what this, the author is trying to get across to these believers. He's trying to just really stick it in their mind. You need to look to Jesus. You're, you're being tempted to turn away to Judaism. You're being tempted to give up. You're being tempted to do this and do that. Um, you're looking to the Old Testament uh, religion, the Old Testament prophets, the sacrifices. 
scrap all of that and look to Jesus because it's only in him that you're going to find salvation. Um, and we must look to Jesus as the only perfecter, the one, who, in, the one in whom our faith finds its completion. Um, Jesus Christ was perfect in his faith. He submitted himself to God. He lived a life of uh, suffering um, as a man. He, uh, the Bible says that through, um, he learned obedience through um, the things that he suffered, and he was perfect in his faith. There was never a time where he doubted his father as a man. He was constantly believing his father. Whatever his father said, he did. Um, there was never a time where he doubted um, his father. We doubt. You know, we, we have times where we don't really trust God's promises. We wonder whether the scriptures are true. We wonder whether God will take care of us, whether God will keep us. We wonder all sorts of things, and we question God so many times. Jesus Christ never did that. He never questioned his father at any point. Um, in the wilderness, when he was tempted, he never questioned his father. Though he was tempted quite seriously, um, Satan tempted him to, to turn the, the stones to, to bread, but he trusted that God would provide at the right time. Um, he never bowed down to Satan because he knew that there was a glory to come. He didn't bow. Um, he didn't throw himself off a building um, because he didn't want to tempt his father. He trusted his father at all times. In Gethsemane, where it was extremely difficult for him, um, he was sweating great, uh, great drops of blood. And at that point, it would have been easy to throw in the towel. Um, he was under immense um, mental, emotional, um, and even physical stress to know that he's going to be soon crucified and separated from his father and have to bear our sins in his body on the tree. He could have easily have faltered at that point and said, I can't do this. This is too much. But at that point, he still believes that his father will um, ultimately reward his sacrifice, that he will receive the sufferings uh, for which he died. He will receive, sorry, the reward for his sufferings, um, and he will receive um, the recompense uh, for what he has done. So he, he persevered, he endured. Um, he is the completer and perfecter of our faith. And then also, we need to look to Jesus as the enthroned Lord. So it says here in uh, verse 2 that Jesus Christ, who for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus Christ um, very much looked ahead to see what was coming. That, that verse, uh, who for the joy that was set before him, in some other, well, I guess in some other commentaries and among scholars, they might interpret it as instead of. Um, so in this uh, translation and in others, it says because of the joy or for the joy, but some people translate it as um, instead of the joy. So that would mean that that interpretation would say that Christ, instead of the joy he had in glory before with his father, like a Philippians 2 idea that he emptied himself um, and came to earth and, um, and humbled himself even to the, the point of, of death. That's the kind of idea that they would go with and say the joy that he was willing to let go of was the joy he had in glory with his father. And for the, for the, for the joy that, he, that, that was um, the joy that was before him in, in glory, he got rid of that and was willing to, to die and suffer. Um, and that is a feasible interpretation, but I don't think it fits the context of, of Hebrews, the whole idea of this uh, looking forward, um, enduring in the present because we have something greater to come. The whole idea of Hebrews 11 talking about these heroes of faith looking forward to a better country. They were willing to suffer now because they knew that there was something coming later. Uh, Moses willing to forsake the pleasures of sin for a season because he was looking to the reward. That idea of a future hope um, influencing how we do life now, um, how we do life in the present, and Christ being our perfect example and pattern. I think it's, it's consistent with the rest of Hebrews uh, for us to say that actually 
this verse, um, for the joy that was set before him, is referring to Christ despising the shame and thinking nothing of the, the cross and all that he was going to suffer because he was looking forward to a future glory. Whether that glory was just being at the right hand of his father um, or just receiving many sons to glory, that idea. But it's a future reward. Christ is looking at a future reward um, of what his father, as it were, you know, the nations will be given to him um, and he's going to be glorified, he's going to be resurrected. Christ is looking at a future um, joy and a future reward to, to affect how he is living in the present, um, so to speak. So Jesus Christ is able, because of what he's looking to ahead, able to forsake, um, um, forsake the, the scorn and the, the mockery that, that the world will give the Jews of that day. They said, you know, he's on the cross. He could save others. He couldn't save himself. Christ was essentially shamed publicly. The crucifixion would have been one of the most gruesome ways you could have died in those times. Um, and it was a very shameful, horrific, embarrassing type of death. Um, very, very uh, dishonoring, very, very humiliating. It's one of the most embarrassing things you could have ever experienced. Um, and Jesus Christ was willing to say, I don't care for that. You know, I, I, I despise it. I think nothing of it. Um, there's a greater joy ahead. And that joy essentially was for him to be set down at the right hand of the throne of God. At least that would have been part of what Jesus Christ would have been thinking about. I'm willing to suffer now and die for my people because I know that ultimately I'll be with my father. I'll be resurrected. My father will be pleased with my sacrifice. I will be in glory. I'll be at the right hand. The right hand was the, the uh, position of power essentially. And that's where I'm going to be. I'm going to be resurrected as a man. My God will not suffer his holy one to see corruption. Psalm 16, verse 11. God is not going to leave my soul, my soul in, in hell. Um, I'm going to be resurrected, essentially. So Jesus Christ had that, that view. He had that future perspective of what was coming. Um, and we have to look to him as our Lord, who now is risen um, and never lives to intercede for us, who is now on the throne. He has all authority, all power as a man. That's the astonishing thing. It's not merely that, of course, Christ is both God and man, but he has this power as a man, as a human being. Um, and he's enthroned right now. There's a man, as that hymn says, a real man um, in, in glory who is there for us. Um, and because he's there, we'll, we'll be there as well. We need to look to Jesus as our enthroned Lord. He is waiting for the consummation of his kingdom when everything will be brought under his feet. Um, and at that time, there will be the restoration of all things. God's big agenda is to consummate everything in Jesus Christ. You know, our lives and all the little plans that we have are just part of a bigger picture. You know, you want to get married, you want to uh, get a good job, you want to go to this place and do this, do this holiday and do that and do this. Those are all wonderful things, but there's a bigger agenda. God's great plan ultimately is to glorify and magnify his son and to consummate everything in Jesus Christ. And Christ is enthroned. And, and as an enthroned king, he has power. You know, that's what kings do. Kings have power. They have authority. Um, they have rule. They hold sway over people. And we can look to him as the enthroned Lord who can give us power over our sin, who, can, who, who has conquered death. Death is something that is a terrifying idea. We, we, we still haven't found a way to, to get rid of death. You know, with all our technological advancements and all the things that we've done as human beings, we still can't beat death. Every man dies. Ten out of ten people die. No matter how great you are, no matter how powerful, famous, beautiful, um, you know, intelligent, we all have to die um, at some point. Some young, some old, some middle-aged, but we all have to die. And, you know, uh, Hebrews chapter 2 talks about this fear of death holding sway over people. Christ has conquered that. There is someone who has actually defeated death. None of us have been able to do that, and none of us will ever be able to defeat death in and of ourselves, but there is one who has. 
defeated death. And he's in heaven right now, and he's a man. And that's astonishing. Um, no other world religion can actually claim that or at least give us that hope. Um, we, we want hope. We want, we want to live forever, essentially. There is that desire in us. If all things being equal and all things are good, we want to live forever. We don't want to die. Death is a sad thing. You know, the ones that we love, our friends, our family, we have to see them go at some point. Um, and we don't want to have to deal with that. And we try and push death to the back of our minds as much as we can because we don't want to think about the reality that one day, you know, the person that you know, I love so much, my friend, my family, my, my spouse, uh, children, I'm not going to see them, at least in this world, they're going to they're gonna be gone. Um, and we have to think about death, and it's, it's a painful reality. Um, but there's someone who has conquered death, someone who has overcome death, someone who can give us hope beyond the grave. Um, Jesus Christ, he's the enthroned Lord. And then lastly, uh, we should look to Jesus Christ as the patient sufferer. That's verse 3 um, of chapter 12. For consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest ye be wearied and faint in your minds. That's the great charge of Hebrews. Consider him, consider him, consider him. Look to Jesus Christ. Consider Jesus as the one who has endured hostility from sinners. You know, um, he suffered. You read through the Gospels and you just see how often he had to deal with um, the petulance and the pettiness and the, the sinfulness of the Pharisees and the Jewish uh, rulers of the day. He was perfect and he knew their hearts. He knew what was in there and he constantly had to deal with sinners constantly, um, their hostility, their hatred towards him. Can you imagine being around perfection and, you, and, and hating it? That's what he had to do. Christ was perfect, but people hated him for his perfection, hated him for his holiness. He had to deal with that consistently, this hostility, uh, this aggression, this hatred from sinners. And the author says to these people, you, you know, you guys are, these uh, Jewish believers, you guys are going through persecution. Some of you have been put in prison. Some of you have had your goods plundered. Some of you are uh, being mocked and, and, and scoffed at for his namesake. But Jesus Christ, you know, he suffered hostility from sinners. He, he was uh, constantly treated badly. Um, but as Peter says, he entrusted himself to God who judges justly. He, uh, he, he didn't revile. He didn't, like, fight back when he, when he was uh, mistreated. He didn't um, try and get his own back. He wasn't about revenge. Our Lord was not about that. Um, and if we want to know how to endure lest we grow weary and we, we faint under the burden of what it is like sometimes to be ostracized as Christians. Sometimes we find that we're going to have to be ostracized. The persecution might not be physical. It might just be, you know, you're an outcast in your social circles. People might think this person is weird because they believe in the Bible. They believe in uh, um, God. They believe in um, the, the fact that God made this world and Adam and Eve and a garden and all this stuff. This stuff is weird, you know. Um, they believe in Genesis to Revelation. They believe that uh, Jesus Christ died for sins and Jesus is the only way to God. You're going to be ostracized. That's going to be part of the persecution. Sometimes it's not necessarily blood and, and physical. As the, author says to, as the author says to them here, you haven't yet resisted um, to the shedding of your blood. It hasn't gone that far. You're not being persecuted to the point where people are literally taking your blood and you're having to die. You haven't gone that far. Um, and many times we'll find that perhaps even in the West, um, in this climate, we're not even going to have to have persecution go that far to the point where, where we're being burned at the stake and you know, uh, having death penalties or some, some gruesome form of death. It could just be that people don't like you because you're a Christian. You, know, you have to suffer um, as a believer. People think you're weird. People would ostracize you. You'll be, uh, you'll be a loner because you trust in Jesus Christ and you won't back down from uh, believing the word in a, in a climate that is constantly doubting and questioning the, the, the truth. And Jesus Christ, 
was the patient sufferer. He was the one who went before us. He was the one who was mistreated by sinners. He was the one who was constantly being tested. People were constantly coming to him just to try and find fault with him, trying to find a way to trip him up. Um, and he had to deal with all of that. And um, he says, you know, if the world hated me, if you're my followers and you truly, I'm, uh, truly are walking with me, then you have to suffer the same things. Um, if we're truly in Christ, we're going to know some form of persecution. If there's no persecution in our lives to some extent, then we have to question whether we know him at all. Because if we're truly living godly, as Paul says to Timothy, everyone who desires to live godly will suffer some form of persecution. It will come in different uh, forms, but you will be ostracized. You will be looked down upon. You will be um, scorned. And we have to look to Jesus as the patient sufferer. If we're going to endure, we have to think about our Lord. He understands what it's like for me to be an outcast. Jesus Christ was an outcast um, in one sense. You know, he was, although he was very popular amongst uh, the people of the day, he was also very hated um, and um, very despised amongst people. Um, despised and rejected of men, as Isaiah 53 says. Um, and if we're going to endure, we have to look to him as the patient sufferer. So that's what the author wants to say to these believers. He's saying to them, look, you people, you Christians, you're considering turning away from Jesus Christ. You're considering going back to Judaism. But you can't do that. You just can't because it's an inferior uh, religion. Um, but also the supremacy of Jesus Christ is just too great for you to turn away. Christ is supreme. He's everything. He's better in every sense of the word. For you to turn away from Jesus is for you to turn to damnation. You need to trust him. You need to look to him. You need to keep looking. And that's what we need to hear in every age and every time, um, in every generation. Um, no matter what we're going through, we always need to hear, look to Jesus Christ. As uh, Robert, Robert, Murray, Robert McMurray McShane uh, said, start all over his name there. He says, for every look at yourself, take 10 looks at Jesus Christ. Um, and that's essentially a great advice. We have to always look to Jesus Christ, um, always, no matter what it is. And... Um, I don't know what you're going through this evening. I don't know. You might feel very, very tired um, of the Christian life. Um, you might feel like you're on the verge of giving up. We do feel like that sometimes. It's, not, it's no secret that sometimes we just can't be bothered or we, we're even tempted to go back to the world. We look back on our former lives and we think, oh, you know, I miss, I, I miss the times of, of uh, you know, of, of the times when I was in the world and I used to um, enjoy running with those people and we used to do certain things, you know, things that I'm ashamed of now, but I'm kind of tempted by those things. I want to go back to those things. You know, obviously we're not in a good place if we're thinking that, but Christians can go to that place where we feel like, I just want to give up this faith. I want to turn back. I want to go back to my old life. I want to go back to the, the you know, the, the clubs and, you know, and the girls and, the, you know, the, the kind of just reckless living that I used to have. I want to go back to that. Um, you know, for different people, it'll be different things. Some people, they were just living lives of aggression and violence. Um, some people, it was, they used to just chase the bag that, you know, they're just about money. And they want to go back to that life. You know, we're tempted by that old life. And uh, you might be here this evening, that might be how you're feeling. You might just be feeling really low and feeling like, oh, I can't be bothered. I can't be asked to live this Christian life anymore. Like, I just want to give up. Um, no one understands how I'm feeling. Well, Hebrews has something to say to you this evening. Hebrews is saying, don't give up. Don't give up. Don't turn from Jesus Christ. Look to him. Look to him. That's the only place where you can find strength. You need to look to him. Go to him as your faithful high priest. Go to him as the compassionate savior that he is. Go to him as the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You might have stumbled over the same sin a thousand times, but go to him. He understands. He died for that very reason. Go to Jesus Christ. Um, he's able to save you. He's able to keep you. Keep trusting him. Don't give up. Amen. Okay, um, before we close, I'm not even sure what hymn, <laughs> let me just have a look.
732. Okay. <laughs> Thank you.